0: Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, once again, we feature Howard Hendricks. Even more than his wonderful teachings, most of his students emphasize it was the time that the prof took to mentor them that influenced their lives. In the days before air conditioning, a certain bench between Stearns Hall and Mosher Library was known as Prof's Bench. He kept office hours there. Students could stop by their questions drew on Prof's wisdom. Once again, what students remember more than his answers was his availability. In front of his classes, Hendricks was somewhat of a comic. He often mimicked the nearsighted Mr. Magoo by scrunching his face, squinting his eyes, and sniffing. Prof's creativity had a purpose, that students might center their lives in Jesus Christ and live according to his word, The prof was known to say that if he had it his way, every student would memorize 1,000 Bible verses before graduating. Today's message is Moses the Magnificent.
1: In Hebrews chapter 11, we are introduced to a refreshing array of men and women who found fulfillment in their faith. But may I remind you that the validity of faith is always determined by its object. You can have great faith in thin ice and drown. You can have weak faith in thick ice and survive. This is not determined by the quality of your faith, but by the thickness of the ice. And in this chapter, we are exposed to a group of God-intoxicated individuals who invested their faith in the only worthy object, the living God. Tonight I'd like to focus your attention upon Moses the Magnificent, the man with an obsession, the obsession of obedience. There are four episodes carefully selected from the life of Moses. Each one begins with the by-faith formula. You will notice it in verse 23 of Hebrews 11, verse 24, verse 27, and verse 28. Robert Louis Stevenson said, the art of literature is the art of knowing what to Omed. And it fascinates me as I study the life of Moses with an extensive body of material in the Old Testament text to discover those episodes which the Spirit selects to underscore in our thinking. There are four great events from Moses' life that are regarded as spiritually significant in terms of his distinctive faith. First of all, I want you to note the great foundation of this man's life in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months by his parents because they saw he was a goodly child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. You see, in order to put Moses' life in proper perspective, the Holy Spirit compels us to begin by looking at his family. God wants you to know that the secret of Moses' faith is found in the faith of his family. Who is greater, Moses or Amram and Jochebed To the average person, they may have heard of Moses they may be aware that he is the great lawgiver and in every major religion he is regarded as an important person. (coughs) But they can't even tell you the name of his parents. The Spirit says Amram and Jacobed are equally important to Moses not equally impressive from a human point of view but very strategic in God's perspective you see it all began in a humble home and the spirit draws his zoomer lens to focus upon two individuals who in faith acted responsibly and meaningfully. The leverage God uses is two ordinary people who became extraordinary by virtue of their faith. God wants you to know that in the spiritual realm, size never determines significance. Three of the smallest bones in your body are located in your ear. The incus, the malleus, and the stapes. Fortunately for the anatomy student, there's a set on the right as well as on the left. And if you miss them on one side, it's conceivable you may find them on the other. But to the uninformed, should he discover them, he would say, they're so small, who needs these? My friend, if you're hearing what I'm saying tonight, you are hearing it only because you have these three bones and in proper working order. Unfortunately, we tend to glorify people who sustain a public ministry. We glorify the platform person. We glorify the person whose name is well known in the Christian scene. But my friends, when we arrive in heaven, we will discover firsthand what our Savior meant when he said the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. God, in his grace, has given me a public ministry. And there are many people who know me, but there are very few people that know a woman by the name of Cora Hendricks. She was my grandmother. She never finished 6th grade because she was the oldest of 13 children. Her father died, her mother had to go to work, and being the oldest she was responsible for rearing the 12 children. My grandmother couldn't pass an elementary exam in theology. But I have never met a person on earth who incarnated Jesus Christ as she did before me. When my parents put me out, my grandmother at great personal sacrifice took me in and reared me and modeled before me the reality of Jesus Christ. I will never forget, as a teenager playing in a dance band, we secured a contract in downtown Philadelphia. We were convinced we were off for the big time. (laughs) And I had one rough assignment. I had to go home. And I can remember climbing those steps on 7th Street in Philadelphia and hearing my grandmother pray. And over and over again, Howard. Howard. You see, my grandmother prayed out loud. She was hard of hearing. She could never hear herself, so it never occurred to her that anyone else could hear her. (laughs) And I will never forget as if it were yesterday the night, I came home, threw myself across the bed, and said, Hendricks, how stupid can you get? The thing you are looking for, your grandmother possesses. And that's reality. And tonight I move largely as a product of Jesus Christ using that significant instrument. You know, as I travel around, I often ask people, uh, you know, what's your spiritual gift? My one. Your spiritual gift <laughs> I'm a plumber <laughs> no I didn't ask you what you do I'm asking what is your gift <laughs> what will they think up next at the seminary
2: <laughs>
1: I ask an individual uh, what's your ministry uh, my ministry I'm, I'm not in ministry. I'm just a layman. <laughs> well, what do you do around here? Oh, I, I don't do it very much. I, I just teach a Sunday school class. How many pupils do you have? Ten. Ten? What a parish. That's far more than you'll care to give an account of at the judgment seat of Christ. I ask a woman, what do you do? Well, I don't do anything. I'm a homemaker. (laughs) Well, how many children do you have? I have three. What a responsibility in discipleship. You see, my friends, if you want to know the significance from a spiritual perspective of this great man of God who talked, to the Lord face to face and God himself said I have no prophet in his leg Then focus your attention as I do upon his family That's where it started In verses 24 through 26 There is another great fact, and that's the great renunciation. Many of us will never forget those searching words from King Edward VIII when he renounced the throne of England because of his love for a woman. But my friend, that renunciation pales when you examine the truth of these verses. For I read by faith Moses, when he was grown up, will you note, the Spirit moves from focusing upon parental faith to focusing upon personal faith. Because faith is not hereditary. Because your parents were people of God does not guarantee that you will be. They may have made significant spiritual decisions that molded and shaped your life, but you've got to come to the place where you make spiritual commitments. And Moses did. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was heir apparent to the great throne of Egypt.
2: Now,
1: Moses... Life is spelled out in terms of two critical decisions that he made. It was Fenelon who said the essence of Christianity resides in the will. And I am convinced these two verses teach that same truth. This man made a choice. This man had an accounting. And this called for the difference. Choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That's not a choice. Ill treatment and the pleasures of sin. Isn't it interesting that a hymn has been changed? We sing it. My Jesus, I love thee. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. But it was not written that way. It was written for thee all the pleasures of sin. But some super saint came along and said, Sin does not have pleasure. But the Spirit said, There is. And that's what Moses chose to give up. And isn't it interesting that he chose the ill treatment with the people of God. He chose to identify with this persecuted group only to discover that no one appreciated his contribution. Why he started? With his ministry, he was out one day burdened over his people. He discovers an Egyptian hassling a Hebrew and he goes up and liquidates him. (laughs) Buries him in the sand, covers it over, convinced no one saw it. The next day he goes out discovering two Hebrews are in a rhubarb. And he says to the one, why did you wrong him? And the other says, who are you? Who made you a prince and judge over us? You're not coming to kill us like you did that Egyptian, are you? You know, there's a remarkable statement in Acts chapter 7. This is a New Testament commentary on what you read in detail in Exodus 2. Acts 7 and verse 24 we read, And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed, smiting the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God by his hand was giving them deliverance, but they understood not We have a little kid in our community who's a remarkable person. He unfortunately just about blew his mind with excessive and hard drugs. And through a miraculous encounter, he came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. And he was so excited, and he was so delivered, That he went home to throw his arms around his mom and dad and to tell them that he was a new creation in Christ Jesus and they proceeded to throw him out the front door. That mother called me on the phone one day because she found that this was one of my students who led him into this religious bit and she cussed me out like I have never been cursed. And she said, I'd rather have that boy on drugs than on Jesus Christ. And slammed the phone down. And that boy has never been allowed back into his home to this day. And a Christian family took him in and is helping him to go through college. He's in the process of preparing for a ministry. That's hard to take. That's exactly what Moses experienced. Here he is called to be a missionary to his own people and his first act is the act of murder. He goes out to be a hero and turns out to be a heel. But will you look? at the next verse, because verse 26 gives a cause-effect relationship. His choosing was only possible because he accounted the reproach of Messiah, greater riches than the treasure of Egypt, for he looked for the recompense of reward. One of my hobbies is the study of Egyptian archaeology. And a few years ago I was ministering in London and my British host, knowing of my interest, said, Hendricks, I've got good news for you because they have a showing of the contents of King Tut's tomb at the British Museum. I said, let's go. He said, I've got tickets. We went to that museum and he had the hardest time getting me out as I looked at that fabulous display of wealth and then reminded him King Tut was actually one of the less significant of the pharaohs. And if this was a sample of the riches of Egypt, which one of the least of the pharaohs possessed, what must it have been like in Moses' day or he lived in the zenith of the empire. This is no small renunciation, but he took the long-range view. Have you? The 73rd Psalm is one of my favorite portions of Scripture because I think I find it easy to identify with this truth. The psalmist looked out on his generation and he was so disturbed, tremendously uptight. Wherever he looked, the godly were suffering and the ungodly were prospering. And he said, my feet had almost slipped. He just about stepped on a spiritual banana peel. And then the text says, I went into the sanctuary to consider their latter end. And I got a whole new perspective. That's the difference, my friends, between the material and the spiritual. Between the perishable and the permanent. Between the temporal and the eternal. And because Moses had the long-range view, the eternal perspective, he could afford to give up with no real loss. But the third thing I notice in this portion of the Word of God is found in verse 27. I call it the great education. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It's interesting to compare with this with chapter 2 and verse 15 of the book of Exodus because there we are told that he feared the king. This passage tells me that a process took place and that which began with fear has ended with faith. Well, how did that happen? Well, one day he was enrolled in DTS, Desert Theological Seminary, (laughs) out caring for the sheep, and he saw a bush burning. Nothing phenomenal about that in the Near East. But the bush was not consumed. That was unusual. And he said, I'm going to stop to see this great thing. And the text says when God saw that he stopped to see, then he revealed himself to Moses. And in effect, he is teaching him, Moses, it isn't the bush, it's the fire in the bush. And any bush will do, as long as God is in it. It's not the instrument, it's the person that uses it. My favorite indoor sport is watching surgery. And some time ago, after a fascinating operation, and the surgeon had gone out, I just leaned over and picked up a set of gloves which he had shed and thrown in a trash can. And I thought, there are the gloves that perform that intricate surgery. Not really, because gloves do not perform anything. It's the hand that fills the glove. And that scalpel is merely a piece of steel until it's place in well-trained and well-experienced hands. We're faced with a phenomenon in evangelical Christianity, and I see it increasingly across America, and that is individuals who are highly gifted, both naturally and spiritually, and who appear to be committed to Jesus Christ and are well-trained for the task but they fold in the stretch. Because whereas God will use your training and he will use your gifts, I hope you never trust in either one. The only thing that makes you a significant servant of Jesus Christ is that you're in the right hands? That he is controlling you, using your talents, using your education to accomplish his purpose. Then in verse 28, I find the climactic episode in this man's life hits the great celebration. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood that the destroyer of the firstborn should not touch them. You see, this began with a great confrontation, and it ended with a great celebration. It was the battle of the gods, the gods of Egypt and their pantheon, and Jehovah, ten rounds, winner take all. But the most significant and climactic of all of them was the 10th plague, when God said, I'm going to bring the death angel into the camp, but I want you to commemorate the Passover, and I want you to sprinkle blood three places on either side of the door and over it but that's not very attractive that's not particularly logical there must be a more dramatic way to accomplish this than that but God said when I see the blood I will pass over you you know it's a profound thought to contemplate tonight my friends that you can be sitting right here in the sanctuary or listening in over the radio on your way to a Christless eternity and hear a message from the word of God and respond in faith to that, saying, I want Jesus Christ to be my savior. I want the blood to cleanse me from my sin and what a comp- was accomplished at Calvary I appropriate for myself and right now in this moment in history you can pass from darkness to light you can be eternally secure in the Son of God imagine that one simple decision and you know, my friends, that's the character of the Christian life. I'm so tired of people who are constantly talking to me about their spiritual highs. And they go from one high to another. And they often say to me, tell me about your experience. So you say, what do you want to hear about my experience for? Oh, I bet you have some mountaintops. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you about a couple of the valleys. <laughs> oh, you don't have any valleys. You're a man of God. <laughs> well, let me tell you about it. I was ministering at the Metropolitan Baptist Church in Oklahoma City, a very significant ministry in that community and they have been so gracious to invite me to come on a number of occasions. We had a particular series which was held on Wednesday night for 12 weeks, and I flew up to Oklahoma City every night and returned later that evening. And I had to fly on Braniff International Airways, which in our community we refer to as the world's largest non-scheduled airline (laughs) and I flew for 12 weeks that's 24 trips and I distinctly remember we were on time once (laughs) and this particular night I thought certainly we'll get a second because it was my younger daughter's birthday and she said daddy you're not going to be home I said sweetheart I'm going to rush home tonight, and if you'll stay up, we're going to have us a celebration. So I went to Oklahoma City to preach the word, and man, I've never preached it like I did. Almost beyond myself. (laughs) You know, kind of standing on the side saying, who's talking? And after I finished delivering my pearls, (coughs) I rushed out, and a car was waiting, and whisked me off to the air terminal. And I rushed in up to the Braniff agent, and I said, what time's flight 159 taking off? He said, sir, I'm sorry to tell you, but that flight hasn't left Chicago. I said, Chicago? Well, then I began my most eloquent speech. And you can't believe how articulate I was on this occasion to tell this guy what a sorry airline I thought this really was, to review all of the history of these last nine weeks, etc., etc. The dear man said, thank you very much. I appreciate your problem. I understand. (laughs) And I went over and sat down to stew in my juice. And while I was sitting there, God said, I dare you to witness to him. So finally, I had to do what I think is one of the hardest assignments I've ever had in my life, and that's to go up and to apologize. And I said, my friend, I am very, very sorry that I talked to you the way I did. I said, uh, in the first place, you obviously are not responsible for this. And I said, furthermore, this is complicated by the fact that I'm a Christian. And it's complicated more by the fact that I'm a minister. And the further I went, the more he smiled. (laughs) And after I got all through, he leaned over and said, that's okay, I understand, sir. I'm a believer too. (laughs) In fact, he said, how do you think I take this guff? dear brother and I have become the closest of friends (laughs) this hasn't improved Braniff but (laughs) we've sure developed a delightful relationship you know I've often thought back on that occasion we've eaten together so many times shared what the Lord is doing in our life you see my friends the name of the game is not the profound Man, I can get up and preach, and I can get up and teach. But, my friends, this is not where the Christian life is lived. It's lived in the reality of your home life, it's lived in the reality of the pressures that you face as a person, in your work, in your study. In every area of life. And the more real it becomes, the more real Jesus Christ becomes. Because, my friends, he's not impressed by how much truth you know. I have a running argument with the Lord, I'm constantly trying to impress him with how much of his truth I know. And he's constantly trying to impress me with how little of his truth I experience. Because that's where the Christian life becomes functional. And the Holy Spirit underscores in your thinking there was a dark night when that angel moved in and the thing that made a place in this hall of fame for Moses is that he, like the rest of the children of Israel, killed the little lamb, took the blood in a basin, took some hyssop, and marked that door because God had said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Do you ever ask yourself, if God were writing my spiritual biography, he were going to write another Hebrews 11 for the next generation out of 20th century Christians, is there enough evidence in your life of supernatural change that he could pick up Four episodes to say, there's a man, there's a woman, there's a fella, there's a gal who is a person of faith. For example, the interesting thing is I go through Hebrews 11 and the thing that motivates me every single day is that I cannot find a perfect person in this collection. In fact, the longer I study it, the more impressed I am that it's another history of God using imperfect instruments. People who do not impress the world by what they can do. People who impress the world by what God does through them. Our Father... Thy word is so plain. It's the lamp to our feet. It's the light to our path. We thank you that you do remember our frame, that we're dust, and you are constantly exposing us to the truth that you have revealed and creating in us a hunger and thirst for its reality. Once more, our Father, we've looked at the life of a man greatly used of you because he dared to believe you. Father, tonight you are looking in this fellowship for some people who will distinguish themselves in this generation by only one thing, their ability to believe you. Lord, we believe, help thou our unbelief, for Jesus' sake we ask it, amen.
0: You've been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.